electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to teach, but to entertain, educate. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC. Of course, tweet me at Jim Kramer. Slow down. No, I'm not talking about my speaking slower. Not going to happen. Or Fed mandated slow down. I'm talking about the speed of events, which is happening way too fast. The parade of negative news is sending stocks lower with an unbelievable velocity, like today, where the Dow plunged 741 points, the S&P plummeted 3.25%, the Nasdaq nosedive 408%. And I've got to tell you, what it is is this. Hard to avoid. It just doesn't matter. See, the die has been cast, so to speak. And many of the world's central banks are in slowdown mode to stop inflation. Incredibly, it's like no one expected it, even though it was obvious that inflation is a global problem, not just an American one. Now, I know that the Fed's just getting serious about inflation very late, I know. Right as we got our first set of Federal Reserve regional reports so that we're negative and housing starts miss big. They're way too late to the game. But where does that get you? I'm not a Monday morning quarterback. By the way, it's also like they're not four quarters and then it's over. This is a long game. Unfortunately for stocks, the two indicators that matter the most to the Fed might just be housing prices, which badly have jumped 20 percent year over year. And the Fed did nothing about it. That's got to stop. And unemployment, which I would bet has to raise to 5 percent, maybe even more to break the cycle of wage inflation. Oh, and from the Fed's perspective, it doesn't hurt that declines in the stock market have already done more to undermine the wealth effect than anything else especially because of your dwindling 401k. The pessimism is incredible, palpable even, including pessimism about stocks as measured by the bull bear ratio, which is about as negative as I can ever recall. Amazing when things get this negative, the proprietary S&P oscillator I follow is now at minus 10. The level has bounced off consistently for years. Then the crowd is usually wrong. But the pessimist crowd this time has been right so far. Lots of people are skeptical that the Fed can't win the battle against inflation. I spent a lot of time on that tonight. I learned years ago that you don't fight the Fed and you don't fight the tape, which is heavily influenced, of course, by the Fed. This tape says everything is vulnerable. Again, something that's highly unusual. 
because there should be a bunch of areas that have stabilized, and they haven't. The skepticism about the Fed's power seems at low ebb. That says if Jay Powell can be a little less like George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life and a little more like Harry po- Henry Potter, the bad guy, then there would be more conviction that inflation will be tamed without creating too much havoc. But it's not, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Enough with the Jimmy Stewart stuff, man. Start getting tough. Many kinds of stocks are sinking, but I want to run them down so you can decide what might be worth picking at and might be worth throwing away. The market simply can't always be this negative. Here's why. First, if the Fed does slow the economy, then it means there'll be fewer price increases. But will there be price rollbacks? I don't think so. That's why Procter & Gamble rallied today. If the consumer's feeling more strapped, she shops more places like Walmart. Again, why it's harder. I happen to like Johnson & Johnson. Yeah, Walmart and Procter were both up, and that's because people feel they give you value. I happen to like Johnson Johnson and Eli Lilly, too. Neither has much price sensitivity. Both have pipelines with many blockbuster drugs, drugs that will mature during this tightening cycle. My child trust owns those. I'm talking my book, but that's okay. We write many bulletins about these. Second, we need to accept the fact that many stocks should go lower. But we need to ask ourselves if every stock should go lower. And we need to know whether it's going lower because of earnings or if it's just being punished because it's part of an asset class that is suddenly out of favor or even hated. So let's use real-life instances, one that was on Sarah Eisen's show, Rodney uh, McClellan from from Kroger. He had very strong sales, strong earnings, and lots of business being done in their own private labels, which are much more lucrative than name brands. Of course, we'll pay less for stocks if the Fed truly plans to destroy the economy, but we're more likely to trade down to Kroger's cheaper private label brands in that scenario. Their private label brands have to be excellent. They're like Costco's, like you know, Kirkland brand. Kroger stock should have been up today, not down. But it's been overwhelmed by the market-wide uh, weakness. I mean, I listened to Rodney, and I just said to myself, you know what? That sounds like a darn good stock. But when, when it's got to, the rain has to stop before I'll buy it, right? You can't just go in and say, hey, that sounds like a good stock, even though it sounded really terrific. When I, when I listened to, to him, I said, mm, I'll put that one away. Maybe I'll buy it later for the trust. Third, I just spent five days on the West Coast. And I have up-to-date information on a bunch of companies that are doing quite well, even as their stocks are doing quite awfully. You shouldn't be worried about the earnings of an AMD, of a Broadcom, or a Palo Alto Networks, the earnings. I've got fresh numbers, not warmed over projections, and they include business from China. These stocks are getting kicked to the curb harder than a lot of others now uh, uh, that we know nothing about. Seems wrong to me, even as I know that Adobe guided down this evening. Let's talk about China for a moment. These days, it's become the conventional wisdom to accept that China's willing to stay offline, totally crushing its economy for long stretches of time because they won't use our better vaccines to stop COVID. Factories remain shut. Business is terrible. It's a country that seemingly existed to put people to work. The longer this lockdown lasts, it doesn't get better. It just gets less likely that Xi Jinping stays president for life. If China were to reopen, almost every tech on your screen, including the ones that have nothing to do with China, would soar higher. They'd be rocket ships, not cement galoshes. Now, this is a philosophical moment for me and you, because for many of the global techs, their businesses might fall down a bit, but their valuations are dropping like flies. Hedge fund managers cannot possibly stay long tech through this downturn. They either have to short or step away from it, okay? They have to chase short-term performance. But you and me, regular investors, getting a chance to buy some high-quality stocks at prices that are cheap but might get lower, and that's something we talk about every day. Tilka spent a lot of time in our 10-20 meeting. Uh, for investors clubs only, but we do our morning meeting. We spend a lot of time just talking about pain, taking pain. Now, there are some areas that remain extremely dangerous. 
You've got the cohort to thrive during the worst days of the pandemic. Watch these stocks every day. You will not believe what happens. DoorDash, Airbnb, Etsy, Carvana, Affirm, Wayfair, Shopify, Roblox, Roku, PayPal, and Block, formerly known as Square. These are just plain old black holes now. I have no idea when they'll stop going down. I've rarely seen stocks act this badly in my life other than in the Great Recession. A silly comparison, given that they're pristine balance sheets, aside from Carvana. And the dot-com bust, also absurd, given that these are real companies, some of which have real earnings. The multiple compression year, what people pay for those earnings, is stunningly dark, very hard to fathom. If these were crummy companies with no hope to ever turn a profit, then these declines would make sense. But maybe they don't. I don't see it that way, though. That said, these stocks are kryptonite here. Oh, and understand, as bad as those stocks that I just mentioned, almost every SPAC or IPO from the last 18 months is far worse. Those, there's 600 of those. Do you know that I'm willing to say that of all those 600, probably 95% it's not too late to sell? Finally, let's try to fathom this. Last night we left here and decided that the Fed had done what was necessary to get things started and crush inflation. There was a lot of joy. There were many buyers of tech up the quarter of four. Even at four o'clock I saw buyers of tech. They were all over the place. That close yesterday was strong and healthy. It looked like things were better. But then shortly after 4 a.m. this morning, and I watched this stuff like a hawk, our markets were hit with wave upon wave of selling of tech stocks from overseas. It was by road selling. They weren't trying to get good prices. They were either running ahead of lower prices here or more likely they were just scared sellers from overseas who were trying to dump everything tech. Either way, they didn't have much discretion and they set the tone for today's disaster. Where were they uh, yesterday from 3 to 4 p.m. where there were nothing but buyers with tech? Well, the answer is if they were in Europe, they were closed. Couldn't take advantage of those higher prices. So bang them down before, uh, uh, before most of us woke up. We know, for instance, that the Swiss Central Bank owns a ton of our tech stocks. Uh, maybe they were selling between 4 and 5.30 uh, this morning. Maybe the Swiss were just bolting. Makes sense. Many of these companies have giant buybacks. They could have worked uh, with the CFOs of those companies to get better prices. But the sellers just didn't care. What central bank really would care about better prices when the dollar appreciation is made up for so much pain? In short, things are happening so, way too fast. Traders are taking action every data point. Investors, they only need to take action on data points that truly change the fundamentals, but they're all lost, bottom line. As much as the Fed wants a slower economy and even a lower stock market, the repricing of all equities is creating some opportunities. But until things slow down with the tape, those opportunities would and could lead to more pain. So if you do buy, do not buy so aggressively. Stay away from the black holes. Don't touch the, the uh, half a league 600 that have been introduced to you in the last 18 months. And accept the fact with the oscillator at minus 10, it should probably let up, but it may not be over. How about Joel, Joel in Texas? Joel. Hey, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for taking my call. What oh. do you think about forward? Well, look, I think Ford is very inexpensive at 11. Uh, it's got a good yield, but the problem with Ford is they have warranty issues and they have what I regard as being commodity issues. The commodities should be, are, being, are, are, are clearing up. But the, the amazing thing about Ford is, well, as cheap as it is, because it's not Tesla, it is not going to get the price earnings multiple it deserves. I wish that the insiders would start buying already because, you know, it yields three and a half. We sold some in the 20s for the charitable trust, thank heavens. All right, the repricing of all equities is creating some opportunities. But until things slow down with the tape, many of these opportunities just aren't yet worth taking. On Mad Money Tonight, the Fed announced a 75 basis point hike yesterday, and the banks seem to shrug off the news or actually send themselves down. I'm breaking down why that might be a group that is worth buying. It's 1990, 1992 for them. 
Then four camps have emerged as we start along this rate cycle, and I'm reviewing who they are and who's worthy of listening to. And Ferguson makes tools to heat up your home. It'll be a real-life test of how the economy's doing and how your house is doing. But can it heat up your portfolio? I'm talking the company's top brands. I want you to stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Today is Wall Street process JPAL's aggressive new approach to raising interest rates and crushing inflation. Average took a huge hit. Because it's going to hurt a huge chunk of the economy in there for a lot of stocks. But there's one industry that no one's talking about that benefits from aggressive rate hikes, even if it's not getting the credit it deserves. In fact, it's getting scorned. I'm talking about the banks. This group moved up slightly yesterday, trailing the major averages. And then today it rolled over along with everything else. Although, again, it came back at the end of the day. I think the recovery makes sense. I think the sell-off is nuts. I've lived through many Fed tightening cycles. I know something like a 75 basis point rate hike, well, not so hot for borrowers and worth very little for savers, is rapturous for the banks. The financials are the only group that benefits directly from a higher federal funds rate. Every time the Fed tightens, it means the banks can take your deposits and then instantly earn higher risk-free rates by uh, returns by putting them in short-term treasuries. They just do an arbitrage there. Higher short-term rates means they automatically make more money every day just by turning the lights on than they did a week ago. 
Of course, the Fed-mandated slowdown will also hurt the banks, more defaults, less demand for loans. But I think any potential weakness will be much more than offset by these much higher net interest margins, NIM, that we've all been waiting for the banks to have, especially given the incredible strength of corporate and consumer balance sheets. So tonight I want to walk you through something bullish, what it means for three of my faves. There are two we own for my Chapel Trust, Morgan Stanley and Wells Fargo, which you can get regular updates on by joining the CNBC Investing Club. And then a third one, it's Bank of America, that is the best exposure to a rising interest rate environment. Well, let's start with Wells Fargo. It's a traditional bank with a large deposit base, exactly the kind of institution that benefits when the Fed tightens aggressively. Of course, the last time Wells reported, the results were disappointing. Their non-interest expenses came in higher than expected, which was unfortunate because we were hoping for better expense control. We were wrong. That was definitely a setback. Should have sold the stock much higher. Didn't. But since then, the stock has kept rolling over to the point where it's now trading at a 52-week low, down 38% from its February highs. In fact, Wells Fargo is down roughly 17% just in the month of June. Wow. This actually makes me want to tear what's left of my hair out. This shortcut thing, it does make things more difficult, but my wife likes it. Remember, the banks directly make more money every time the Fed raises interest rates. And a 75 basis point triple rate hike like yesterday, that's called manna from heaven. Now, as you know, but you'd have to live through the 1990 to 1992 period. Some of you were in the glint of the eye. Some of them were in the PJs. But I was in it. And that was the halcyon moment for banks, 1990-1992, when Greenspan decided to tighten simply to create free money for the struggling banks. That's what's happening now. I mean, Powell doesn't want that, but that's what's happening. At the beginning of the year, Wells Fargo expected its net interest income to grow by 8% this year. That's a $3 billion increase versus 2021. Since then, the Fed's gotten more hawkish. From Wells reported in April, they said to expect a 15% increase in net interest income, up more than $5 billion from last year. And that money flows straight to the bottom line. They don't need to lift a finger. At the time, the 10-year Treasury was yielding 2.8. Now it's yielding 3.2, though it was the 3.4 this morning. You have to expect their net interest income will be even stronger just because of the Fed funds rate. Now, Wells Fargo's been reluctant to pin itself down with specific numbers, thank heavens, because that'd be stupid. But CEO Charlie Scharf and CFO Michael Sanomasimo have made some very encouraging comments in recent industry conferences. I think 15% net interest income growth is the low end of what they could do. Of course, higher rates, again, will have some pain. You have to expect a real slowdown in the mortgage business, but it's already pretty much slowed. You have to expect more defaults because that's what's happening, even though they have the fewest defaults I've ever seen them have. But so far, the company hasn't seen any signs of weakness in their overall loan growth. Let me put it this way. Wells Fargo had $27 billion in pre-tax net income last year. They're going to make an additional 5 or $6 billion just from higher rates at a minimum. Yet the stock's down big since the Fed started its crusade against inflation. Remember, this is a bank that was at 62 in the uh, second week of February in 2018. It's been cut in half. I think you're getting a pretty good opportunity here. Next up, Morgan Stanley. Okay, this one's a little more complicated because it's an investment bank that's been rapidly moving into asset and wealth management, which we want them to do. In general, you'd expect them to benefit less from higher interest rates. Uh Uh-uh. They've got a huge deposit base, and they still have net interest income. Back in January, management told us to expect $500 million in incremental net interest income from higher rates, but they also spelled out what additional rate increases would mean for their bottom line. No one's paying any attention now, but I was. I am a geek. According to Morgan Stanley, every incremental 100 basis point parallel shift in rates would translate into $1.3 billion for them, and that almost all flows right to the bottom line. In January, they thought it would take several years to get there. By the time they reported again in April, Morgan Stanley said they'd benefit from higher rates, where they'd be double what they were predicting in January, many more than a billion this year. And remember their commentary, every 100 basis point increase in rates translates to $1.3 billion. This year, we've had three rate hikes from the Fed that total 150 basis points. Widespread expectation is that Powell's only just begun to tighten. 
the yield curve has shifted too. So we can't just say they're printing money, but I wouldn't be surprised at all, at all surprised if Morgan Stanley can generate an additional $2 billion of net interest income this year. That's not nothing for a bank that had less than $20 billion in pre-tax income last year. And again, they're in dire straits mode in the sense that they're getting money for nothing, not that they're the sultans of swing. Never confuse the two. May I just say, by the way, also, they have an aggressive buyback. I have to believe at these levels, it would be, they'd be feasting on their stock. And finally, there's Bank of America, which is less than a dollar above its 52-week low, even though it's been putting up some strong numbers this year. Remember, banks are supposed to be sold in recession. I'm saying we, sh- we should be thinking more like 1990 to 1992. Bank of America's got an immense deposit base, thanks in part to their best-of-breed digital operations. And they've been very clear about how interest rates translate into uh, higher earnings. And boy, do they ever translate. Be in the year. Bank of America was saying that a 100 basis point parallel move higher in rates would translate into additional $6.5 billion in interest income for them for doing nothing. When they reported in April, they gave us more detail. CFO Alistair Borthwick said if we get 100 basis points worth of rate hikes from the Fed, they're sensitive that would be $6.8 billion. This is just here. Here's $6.8 billion, people. The numbers keep fluctuating, but we know Bank of America is going to make a fortune. They're the best position to benefit from the Fed rate hikes. I wouldn't be surprised if they get $10 billion in additional net interest income this year because Powell's tightening faster than expected. Serious needle mover for a bank that had $34 billion in pre-tax income this year. But everyone's afraid to say what I'm saying. They're all scared. They're under the desk. They're afraid. They went home to their mommies. They cried. Not me. I'm right here. Of course, all the bank stocks have been crushed because everybody's worried about a Fed-mandated recession. Recession is obviously bad news for financials. Duh. Plus, investment banks like Morgan Stanley have already taken a serious hit in their capital markets business, which is absolutely awful. But that's why the stock's down big. So here's the way I see it. If you think we're headed for a full-blown recession, it's, it's right to avoid the bank stocks. But if you're like me and you think the Fed can actually do some needle threading and engineer a not-so-incredibly-hard crash landing, these companies will make fortunes from higher rates. And we'll be talking, why didn't we buy them? We knew that the numbers were too low. The bottom line, at these levels, I think Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, and Bank of America already reflect the recession worries. But they don't reflect the earnings upside from the Fed's rate hikes. Because people are such cowards, they won't say that. But I'm not. And that's why they're worth buying. Their money's back in the brain. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. When you start going down a rate hike cycle, there'll be a cacophony of voices explaining where we're headed and you need to be able to make sense of them while taking them with a grain of salt. So tonight, I'm giving you my cynical to the core, been there, done that handbook to Fed tightening rhetoric. I need to preface this by saying that I am really sick of the billionaire money managers who come on our air and say outrageous things that they can only get away with because they're insanely rich. Let's start with them. Camp one. 
No billionaire ever seems happy. Remember when Lenin said that the rich are unhappy is their own fault? Well, forget that. That's been repealed. Yeah, they're all unhappy. And when they're on air, and none will ever admit to being confused, they know exactly what they're talking about. Off air, they're much less angry, and actually they're quite puzzled. But in public, they can't resist making sweeping, dramatic, negative gestures peppered with from-the-heart revelations about how American civilization, as we know it, is being ruined by the Fed. Like it's like, you know, the Confederacy. This camp, the Confederacy is bad, all right? This camp is full of people who are never content. They create unrealistic assumptions. Then they blame Jay Powell for not living up to them. They also act like they could be doing a much better job than Powell if they ever got a chance. Like, oh, he's an idiot. I'm a genius because I'm a billionaire. I mean, enough already. Lord knows I can't blame anyone for being too dramatic. But I try not to be condescending and certainly don't pretend to be all-knowing. In the end, the problem with the billionaire camp is they have different priorities from the rest of us. It's not that they're lying when they say everything's going wrong. It's that they have an inherent bias to preserve their own wealth. They don't care as much about generating new wealth, not theirs and certainly not yours. There's a reasonable perspective when you got a billion dollars. But unless you're one of the richest people in the world, it's meaningless to you. If I were a billionaire, I'd never own a stock again. You only need to get rich once. Why take the risk? Municipal bonds, baby, nothing else. If you're not already rich, though, you have to be comfortable with more risk. So it's not helpful for me to take a page from the billionaire playbook and say, sorry, but everything's bad. It's the worst time our country's ever been in. Again, dismissing like the Civil War, dismissing World War I, dismissing World War II. No, it's pal. And uh, we're all going to run around with wheelbarrows full of worthless dollars and your kids will have nothing. So why not just stick to your index funds or go into cash? You see, I don't find that beneficial. I'm trying to help you make money. I'll fail a lot, but I'm trying and I'll win a lot. Of course, Camp One won't explain that to you when they make their dire pronouncements about how inflation will destroy anything. Some of these guys are very smart, and they sound very convincing. But their analysis only applies if you're already super rich. If you're a regular person, you're going to have a different set of priorities from these people. So they're not that helpful, okay? And they really got to stop the, the world's over thing. I mean, they got to stop that. It doesn't help. I'm not saying it's a great time. I mean, before I came out, I talked to my wife about this. I said, I want to come out and be realistic. It's not a great time. That's it. It's not a great time, okay? The second camp is almost as bad as the billionaires who think, woe is me, the world's ending. This is what I call the maximum pain cohort. They say the only way for the Fed to defeat inflation is by causing a horrendous recession, or it will cause a horrendous recession no matter what it does because they're idiots. They argue that Jay Powell's already late, foolishly late, so of course he has to tighten very aggressively. These guys got their way in the period from 2005 to 2007. They got their way. When the Fed hit us with a series of lockstep rate hikes that ultimately helped throw us into the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. The maximum pain camp, they refuse to recognize that both the consumer and the enterprise are the healthiest they've ever been, at least when it comes to their balance sheets, and that's what matters in a slowdown. When you've got a good balance sheet, you can ride out pretty much anything. The downturn in 2007 was the opposite. It started with everyone having a bad balance sheet. Credit card dependent consumers overstretched underwater homeowners, the banks, insurance companies, brokers and hedge funds, big bets on housing, bonds that were worthless. They all had too much leverage. Now, in the next few weeks, we'll learn uh, who had too much leverage. I mean, maybe it's the uh, leveraged bio companies. And each time it will, when we see one, the market will get hit. You've got to get used to that. 
As someone who not only yelled fire in a crowded theater on the Today Show in 2008, of course, because there was a fire, not long before the Dow was cut in half, as someone who vocally spoke out against the Fed when I knew I had better sources and they were oblivious, I'm more than happy to tell you when things are terrible and they're a bunch of knuckleheads. They're not terrible right now. They're just not good. Our purchasing power is being eroded by, a na- by nasty inflation. That's stipulated. That inflation comes from a lack of supply for pretty much goods of, of, of every kind imaginable, coupled with the tremendous purchasing power of the consumer who's healthy, has a good balance sheet, and has a job, and has a better opportunity for another job if they cross the street. The Fed can't do anything about the supply chain, but they can put pressure on the job market, making people feel less financially secure, which makes them less willing to spend. Does the stock market not make you feel less financially secure? I mean, look at your statement. You feel great? Right. Of course, j is really playing for time until either China reopens or we get some resolution of the war in Ukraine. That's why I believe the recession or bus camp is wrong. There are too many levers for the Fed to pull that aren't, they aren't considering. They're too binary in their thinking. They can only imagine rampant inflation or miserable recession. But those are just the most extreme outcomes. The third camp is the one that's predominant right now. That's the camp that says we're going to have a slowdown with inflation or stagflation. The stagflation camp really drives me crazy because they act like the economy can't accelerate and inflation is already totally embedded in the system and can't be rooted out. I'm someone who lived through the actual stagflation during the bad old days of Jimmy Carter. It was a miserable experience. Nobody could even make a dime in the market or anywhere else for that matter. I don't even get me started on the stupid gas lines and the odd and even things at the end of your license plate. But I'm not worried about stagflation. Yesterday, Jay Powell said he'd pull out all the stops to break inflation. Of course, you either believe Powell or you don't. I think most don't, which is why I'm betting the stagflation camp will be the dominant one, at least until the Fed actually does back, break the back of inflation, at which point you'll have missed out on an incredibly strong move higher in stocks. All right, finally, there's the camp that I'm in. And, uh, you know, I've been around. Let me, think, let me explain this to you. This is the camp that says there's been tremendous destruction in the stock market already. Have you noticed? The likes of which we've rarely seen. Have you seen? And we're probably still not done with the pain. But after being way too timid, the Fed has indeed woken up. So you have to bet that over time the Fed does win, even if you think they did a bad job, which almost everybody I know says they did. While it will be difficult initially because many industries are hurt by higher rates, home builders, for instance, rolling over just after they've been rolling over, they roll over some more and they roll over some more again. We know the banks, though, will benefit because they instantly become more profitable every time the Fed tightens circa 1990, 1992, if you're old enough. The drugs should do well, too, along with the tech companies that make money and return capital to investors, not the others. I'll also contend that you can keep owning the oils, even though they've become very unfashionable because the president's been hectoring them. But they do generate uh, huge amounts of capital and return the capital shareholders, and they're much more reluctant to flood the market with additional supply. This camp just needs Jay Powell to stop being like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life and more like Henry Potter in It's a Wonderful Life. If Powell doesn't stay tough and stay on message, then I'll be wrong, and the stagflation cohort will look a lot smarter. So to review... The first camp is made up of incredibly rich people whose perspective only applies to billionaires, not people who are still trying to get rich themselves. And they think this is the worst time that the United States has ever had. Not the Civil War, not World War I, not World War II, not the War of 1812. I don't know. The second camp says we must have a severe recession. There's no two ways around it. They're practically salivating over it. They seem to cheer it. Maybe they're short. The third says we'll be mired in stagflation. And these people are really unhappy. And the fourth, my camp, says things aren't that hot. I wouldn't cash out, stay the course, muddle through, 
Events are worked their way through the events that caused inflation. Russia, China, the supply chain mess. Jay Powell channels Malcolm X and beats inflation by any means necessary. Not a great time. Not a bad time. More bad than good. The bottom line, once that happens, once my camp prevails, you'll want to have some stock exposure. Because when the market turns, it tends to turn on a dime. And you will be kicking yourself if you gave up on the whole asset class because some billionaire told you that the world is ending. Uh, These first three camps, they are about... They are about driving you crazy, making you feel horrible, and having you get out every single penny. They want you out of stocks in the worst way. This group says, all right, you're going to take some pain, but you'll make some money. In the end, not now. Kathy in Ohio. Kathy. Hi, hi, Jim. Question for you on on Clorox. Yeah. Uh, Taking a little bit of pain, and I just want to know – if it's a stock that's going to be uh, a good company to own over the next three to five years, and if we're looking at the stock to possibly get back to uh, pandemic prices, or are it can't get the price? pandemic prices, Kathy, because remember, uh, Clark's had those wipes. I mean, like, you know, here's the mad money ones. Uh, and I feel like that what happened is, is that the business is okay, not great. Uh, they need to have all their costs come down. Uh, and and keep taking price. And so that makes it not as good as my friend, buddy, pals in Procter and Gamble, which my travel trust has been buying and I think is terrific. I understand when you say, hey, wait a second, Jim, your travel trust buys bad and good. Well, that's true. When you play cards, sometimes you lose. How about Bill in Georgia, please? Bill. Yeah. Hey, how you doing, Jim? I'm having just a Jim Dandy day. How about you? I'm doing good. Um, right. I, I, I just, I'm just going to go with the, uh, the old thought of, I need your help. Hey, I'm here. Okay, uh, Costco, hold, sell, buy. You know, we're, right. we're, I'm just a, a, you know, a, a small investor, and, and I'm just trying to figure out what is going to happen, you know, looking okay. at the next. All right, well, here's months. how we're going to approach Costco. Mr. Galanti, the CFO, has these great conference calls. It is very clear to me that if you want to own a retailer, you either own Costco or you say, I don't want to own a retailer. Right? Costco is not really a retailer. It's a club. And they've made money in good times and bad. Will the stock go down? Hey, you know what? I'll guarantee it. Will it end up down? Uh, I might want to guarantee that, too. And that's what the problem is. If you think you can sell Costco and get back in, knock yourself out. All right. When it comes to the Fed tightening cycle, These camps are the ones that want you to stay in your chains. And that's okay. Chains, I'm not there. Okay? This is the camp that actually is trying to help. The last camp, that's what you want. Because it says, don't cash out. Stay the course. It's not going to be a great time. But when we get there, you'll be able to make money because you're back in. Or you're in and never left. We'll eventually work our way through these events, people. But you cannot believe that the world is over. You cannot accept that the Fed is powerless. And you certainly cannot say to yourself that, you know what, the world's coming to an end because of a recession. It's not like that. Right, there's much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive, my exclusive with Ferguson. With mortgage rates creeping higher, home sales slowing down, what does that mean for anything, including Ferguson? I'm checking out with the CEO. Then there's so much blame game going around when it comes to Jay Powell. I'm, you know what, I'm going to tell you what Powell should do to silence these critics. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer.
Oh, thank heavens we got a guest can help us here. How do we square the widespread expectation that we're headed for a painful downturn with the great results we keep getting from companies that are very much hostage to the business cycle? Take Ferguson. That's the big North American, now North American, distributor of all sorts of plumbing and heating products. These guys have a great read on both commercial and residential construction, not to mention the bottlenecks in the global supply chain. And you know what? When Ferguson reported on Tuesday morning, they delivered a remarkably strong quarter, better than expected on every line, with 23% sales growth and 40% earnings growth. They even raised their full-year operating income forecast. So is the economy in better shape than Wall Street seems to believe? Or is there something special about this company that's allowing them to triumph over a tough environment? Maybe they're whistling past the graveyard. Maybe we're listening. I don't know who's whistling. Let's take a closer look with Kevin Murphy. He's the CEO of Ferguson to learn more about the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Murphy, welcome to Man Money. Thank you, Jim. Great to be with you. Okay, so, Kevin, I read through everything, everything. And I would sum it up that even though you just reported June 14, which when I look is two days ago, that you were saying that things are strong, that demand is good, uh, that residential remains robust, and that yeah, things are basically on track, maybe even better than on track. How can I square that with the endless selling of everything that has anything to do with what Ferguson touches? Yeah, so Jim, we are certainly mindful. We're eyes wide open about what rates, what price, what consumer sentiment can do to the macro, and what it can do to the residential new construction market more specifically. But as we're sat here today, and we've got a really balanced business mix in Ferguson, just over half of our business is residential, a little under half is non-residential, about 60% repair, replace, break, fix, remodel, about 40% new construction. And even that new construction business, in fact, all of our areas of opportunity really are growing with good backlogs, good volumes being shipped, and candidly, our underground water, wastewater, stormwater business, which is the first on site when the shovels turn and the pipes getting put in the ground, we've still got good order volume, good shipment activity, and good bidding activity that's working on future work. So right now, we're in pretty good shape and we see good demand. So you're buying back stock. You bought back $1.3 billion, not $2 billion. You are considering it buying back stock even at these levels, despite the fact of what we know with the stock market. Yeah, we've got a good, resilient, cash-generative business. Again, the balance will serve us well. We're in good financial condition. The balance sheet's in good shape. We're investing in inventory. We're investing in tools that are going to take care of our customers, value-added services, a consultative approach that will drive that organic growth. And then that cash-generative model still allows us to return capital to shareholders when we're underneath our leverage range of one to two times. And so we're there right now, and so we're in the process of buying back shares. All right, so let me play devil's advocate here. The market's down. Uh, Gloom and doom. We got a really bad housing start number. Do you call a meeting among all your salespeople and say, guys, the economy's slowing. Let's cut costs. We got to be sure that we're going to make the numbers, and we're probably going to do layoffs. Does any of that ring true? That is not happening. What we do is we make sure that we understand exactly what's happening in the business. We've got a resilient model. We're making sure that we manage the cost base of the business such that we understand what our volumetric growth and what's happening with open order activity. And as that volumetric growth flows, that's how we invest in the OPEX side of the business. And like I said, right now, we've still got some pretty good demand activity. We've got early views as to what happens from our underground business. And then we see that flow through into residential trade plumbing, commercial plumbing. And that balance right now, again, new construction RMI, residential non-res, 
gives us some good strength as we go towards the future. Because on the non-res side of our business, there's some really healthy activity, not just knock on commercial activity after residential build out, education, healthcare, lab and pharma, and then onshoring and manufacturing activity. All right, so what's too healthy? In other words, when you listen to Powell, he's getting a lot of criticism because he allowed, he looked the other way when we had wage inflation, looked the other way when we had a lot of inflation. What's too healthy? What, what is, in, in, uh, as a consumer, is, is going up in price so much that I should be freaking out in your repertoire? Yeah, we were worried about what price might do from a demand destruction right. perspective. We saw the inflation early on. We saw commodity inflation, so think copper tube, steel pipe, cast iron, ductile iron pipe. We saw it as early as the fall of 2020, and we saw it flowing into finished goods. So we knew it was there. We kept a pretty keen eye on whether or not that increase in price, that inflation that was flowing through, was going to destroy demand. The good part about our business is there's still strong activity, not just to repair, replace, not just to remodel the home, but also, when you think about, we're underbuilt by, call it, three and a half million units in the U.S. So there's still good demand, again, residentially and non-res. We haven't seen price really start to pull back on what that demand looks like. Well, you know, when I listen, I keep thinking this is a healthy environment, but obviously people feel that things are runaway inflation. We have to admit we've seen a 20 percent increase in homes in home uh, prices in the last two years. That is not sustainable. Would you agree? We would agree. Yeah, we, we've seen a run up in price. We know that we're unlocking the millennial generation. We know we need houses for new family formation, immigration, disaster recovery, second home. But we need to see that moderate. That's going to happen. We know we need to halt this inflationary pace. But again, right now, it hasn't played through into our business. But we keep pretty mindful as to what that see, means. And it's just like you know, today, all the home builders were down big because of the housing number. And people thought that when those are down 40, 50 percent going into that bad, a weak housing start number, they wouldn't be hit again. But they obviously will. I think that you have a very sober attitude, the right attitude. But it, it you know, I, I can only tell you that the pessimism is so thick here that a very good business mm-hmm. like Ferguson stock may not translate into how strong your business is. But I think we all have to accept that right now, Kevin. That's just the way of the world. Yeah, when we look at it, if you take aside the share price, our associates are driving value with our customers. They're delivering a consultative approach. They have a project mindset to how to get a job done from underground all the way up through finished plumbing, appliances, lighting, HVAC, and they're delivering value to their customers and making sure that we're relevant. As we go, we're going to keep a healthy mindset. Again, watching that OPEX side of the business, keeping a strong balance sheet. We're 0.8 times net debt to EBITDA as we finished our half year. So we're in a strong position with a balanced, resilient business mix. We're looking forward to the future. All you can ask for it. I want to thank you so much. That's Kevin Murphy, first time CEO of Ferguson. Great to meet you, sir. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Jim. Really appreciate being on. As he said, look, you know, business is good. That doesn't mean the stock is good. That's where we are. Uh, It's very sobering because the stocks have often translated to what what the companies have been doing, but they're not right now. Big disconnect. That's okay. We have to accept it, and we have to keep thinking a little more positive than they are, but things are not great. We have money's back in. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy, the lightning round is over. Bobby in Florida. Bobby. 
Boy, yeah, Jim, love your show. Wow, that so, is so spirited. What's up? <laughs> so a few weeks ago, took about a quarter of our cash savings. We purchased Capital Southwest Corporation. We got it at $22.13. It provides a dividend. It's a good play. We thought it's about 10 11% a year. Then, boom, stock market drops. Right. My wife's worried now. Question we have. Looking at the looming well, recession. See, here's, here's the problem, Bobby. It, and you and I share enthusiasm for life in the stock market. But we don't know what they really own. See, it's one of these companies that's kind of a black box. And that's why I wish I could help you, but I don't recommend those stocks because we can't really tell what they're in. And I'm very sorry, but I sure do like your attitude. Let's go to David in Tennessee. David. Hey, Jim. Um, I was thinking how truly blessed we are to live in America, the land of opportunity. I, True. I told my two sons in America, if they work hard, they can be anything they want to be. I agree with that. What's the stock? Uh, Toronto, but um, the last three days have been beautiful. Twenty-five percent gains in the last three days. I just, I, I feel good. Toronto, about them, and I just want to do it for you. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm trying to. I mean, Bank of America recommended it, but it's one of those. Look, it's one of those newer companies that doesn't have any earnings. You know how I feel about those guys, Jacob in Connecticut. Jacob. Hey, Jim. I love watching the show. Thank you, buddy. I'm calling about an industrial company that makes specialized vehicles, many of which are used for the military. And they'll be helping transition the postal service to okay. an all-electric fleet. They have a uh, price-to-earnings ratio below 20, which I know is the main criteria. Right. The company is Oshkosh. They make things to stuff for turn capital, and it's very good. And therefore, it is a buy into this weakness. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. So much blame game, so little analysis. Talk about the endless second guessing of Fed Chief Jay Powell's every move. It's worthless. Hey, you want to play that game? I can do it. Oh, I was calling for 100 base points. He only did 75. I'm disappointed. That's why we're down. Hey, uh, what does that get you? Do I look smarter than he does? Powell himself said he was wrong. Big deal. But for a moment, I want to tell you what would have silenced the critics. Let me explain what I would have said to the media yesterday if I were the Fed chief. If I were Powell, I would have started off by saying, ladies and gentlemen of the press corps, I screwed up. I was too easy because I was worried about mass unemployment when the real problem was too many jobs and not enough job seekers. That was a big mistake. I got it wrong. I have to correct it by any means necessary, which means I'm going to raise rates by 0.75% each month until I see substantial unemployment, which will allow slack, the end of job hopping to get raises, and a slowdown in demand of all kinds, including the use of oil. Then I go on to say, my hope is that by the time I get there, the Chinese government will have stopped trying to control COVID by locking down the country and will have started using more effective vaccines. I did not believe they would behave this irrationally. I was wrong. Second, I did not believe the Russians would launch a campaign of aggression against Ukraine and the West would send only token weaponry, which might create a Chechen-like defeat for the Ukrainians. There will still be sanctions on Russia for oil and gas, but at least food inflation should plummet. That leaves gasoline, which is simply intractable, unless the president sits down with our own producers and works out a plan to boost production here, not in Saudi Arabia. The president should break bread with them instead of hectoring them to work out a legitimate plan. That seems unlikely. Bad for the base. Third, 
I was not the one who did a gigantic public works program and there weren't enough job, people to fill the jobs associated with it, making labor even tighter. That wasn't on me. Fourth, we need to immediately suspend the 14-hour-a-day driving limit on truck drivers until we have trained enough new truck drivers. And we should take over the West Coast ports and use the National Guard to unload product if these delays keep up. The longshoremen are holding us hostage. Finally, and you are really not going to like this, Mr. and Mrs. Press, I am willing to see unemployment rise to 5% or even 6% in order to slow demand and do the job of containing inflation until either Russia or China or both comes to their senses. And with that, I'll take no questions because it's a huge waste of my time. There. That's what Powell should have said, although maybe less political because the Fed chief is supposed to be above the fray. Then again, he's independent. He can say whatever he wants. I know this sounds radical, even punitive. Obviously, he doesn't need to be so undiplomatic and outspoken. But he has to make these points and make them over and over again, even if he's more polite about it. Oh, and by the way, no more press conferences. All they do is throw him off message. He goes, he bobs and weaves too much, which is something we can no longer afford at this point. And we all have better things to do than watch those press conferences. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. Boy, am I trying to find it. I promise to try it, but haven't found it lately. Just for you on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.